It's chapter 1, reading from uh, verses 1 through to 18. The genealogy of Jesus. A record of the genealogy of Jesus, Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abimadab. Abimadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiliel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Alakim, of Alakim the father of Azar, and Azar the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliod. Eliod, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were fourteen generations in all from Abraham to David. Fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Joseph was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. As we stand, we pray, Lord Jesus, as we turn our eyes to you, please would you show us from your word this morning how your lineage and birth reveal the promise-keeping and eternally loving Lord. Please show us what that means uh, in this ancient family tree, that we might know your love and depend on your faithful promises for ourselves. Amen. Amen. I'll do please be seated. And 
Uh, I love that spontaneous round of applause. Uh, Leslie, well done for for reading uh, that uh, list of names. That's where we're beginning in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, We did an overview last week of uh, the whole Gospel to try and get a feel for some of the uh, the biggest story that Matthew is telling us. Uh, Well, today we start the work of actually working through the Gospel. So it begins with the genealogy. That's where we're going to be. Uh, Do turn it back uh, or uh, click onto it, page 965 in the Church Bibles. Uh, And as I said last week, uh, my cousin is a keen researcher of our own family tree. He's discovered that uh, we have a naval lieutenant who fought beside Nelson on his flagship at the Battle of Trafalgar. To be honest, though, after years of research and hundreds of names, that's the only really exciting thing he's found out. Uh, there are a couple of uh, clergymen scattered through uh, the list, so uh, I found that personally encouraging. But apart from that, they're really just names. And I dare not tell John this, but not even that interesting to me, and they're my flesh and blood. Uh, and as for other people's family trees, well, I'm sorry, but it's hard to get excited at all. If you were here last week, you will recognize that I am my father's son, So, why did the Holy Spirit see fit to open what would become the New Testament with a genealogy? Not the racing start of Mark, the thoughtful one of Luke, or the sublime one of John, but rather a family tree. So, as I say, do have it open. And the first thing to observe is that it's not just a family tree that, Jesus, that Matthew is introducing, but of course the family tree and more of Jesus, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That word genealogy uh, is in the original language of the New Testament, Greek, uh, is the word genesis, and it could equally be translated as origins. Matthew is uh, beginning his story by telling us the backstory. Uh, Where did Jesus come from? Now that begins, uh, of course, with what we're looking at today in the genealogy itself, uh, but it links very much to what follows. It's a heading over the first couple of chapters of Matthew's Gospel. His birth, uh, the visit of the adoring Magi, the escape to Egypt and the return uh, to Nazareth, all of those echoing uh, some of what we're going to be looking at this morning. But even so, we have a list of names So why are they so important? Well, here's the answer. These names stand for the long centuries of God's dealing with his people in the long centuries prior to and culminating in the birth of Jesus. And it's when we think about what happened to these people and particularly what God said to them and how they engaged with him that we can see in the coming Jesus that the Lord is indeed faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. It isn't going to be a list that makes much sense to anyone who is unfamiliar with the Old Testament story that puts flesh and blood, as it were, on the names of the people in this list. But that's presumably why the Holy Spirit made it the first page of the New Testament Jesus' arrival is not a new story that comes from nowhere, freshly written. Rather, it's the fulfillment and the culmination of an old story, of God's story, that from the beginning he had made promises that one day he would come and save his people. 
In short, this genealogy tells us that the one who is born as Emmanuel, God with us, is the God who keeps his promises and who is loving towards all he has made. The Old Testament has many promises to Abraham and David, especially regarding their offspring. And they're the key names in this long list. The birth of Jesus means that the Lord has kept his promises to those men in particular and all those who carried the promise through the centuries. Now, the ancient Jews, like my cousin John, also loved their genealogies. You can find many of them in the literature of the first century and around there. But there were strict rules about how they were to be presented. And when you know what some of those are, you realize that Matthew is subverting those. So it may not be obvious to us, but what would have struck one of Matthew's contemporaries about this genealogy was the presence of women. And not the presence of the important women, the matriarchs. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is not named. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is not named. Instead, he dots into the list a number of women who, in each each case, were in different ways outsiders. They weren't Jews, or they were notorious sinners, or they weren't really that important, according to the way the world views people. The birth of Jesus, therefore, means that the Lord is loving towards all he has made, or we might say that he is full of grace, that the birth of Jesus will be good news for outsiders, for strangers, for sinners, for those who struggle to find their own place in the culture around. This family tree hints at what will become explicit in Matthew's telling of the gospel, that there is a place in Jesus' family for you. So let's trace those two themes. Jesus' birth uh, means that the Lord keeps his promises and the Lord is full of grace. First, then, he keeps his promises. Well, let's consider three men uh, in Jesus' lineage, the two obvious ones and one less so. Number one, Jesus is the son of Abraham. This is where uh, Matthew begins Jesus' family tree. And it's worth remembering, just in terms of getting a feel for this, that Abraham lived around 2000 BC. In other words, for the people first reading Matthew's book, uh, they were as long separated from Abraham as we now are from Matthew and the events he tells us about Jesus. It was ancient history, uh, even as Matthew wrote it. Let me read you some of the ancient promise that God made to Abraham. This is from Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham. And later the Lord adds one more crucial element to the promise. Uh, To your seed, that is to your offspring, to your descendant, I will give this land and keep all these promises. So the Lord promises to Abraham 2,000 years before the coming of Jesus that his descendants will become a great nation living in a promised land, but that more than that, everyone on earth would one day find the blessing of God through a descendant of Abraham. 
God's blessing through Abraham, therefore, in the end, would not be limited to one tribe or one people or one era, but one day people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue would be blessed through one born to his family line. And that is that crucial element, this global pouring out of God's blessing would not come through Abraham. It would come through one who was to be born long into the future. That one day someone is going to have to write a family tree to show which of Abraham's descendants is that one who would bring God's blessing to the whole world. Can you begin to see why Matthew wrote a genealogy and that for him this is such good news? You know, those promises you've always learnt, he would say uh, to the Jews for whom he was probably writing uh, in his original audience. Those great promises from so long ago will trace the tree. God's keeping them because Jesus is a son of Abraham. And as he comes, we looked at this, didn't we, in Galatians uh, a few months ago where Paul says in chapter 3, these ancient promises are spoken to Abraham and to his seed, his offspring. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, says the apostle, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The one who is coming will be the singular and complete fulfillment of this ancient promise. Promise is not kept, at least not fully in Isaac, but it is kept in Jesus. It is through him that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. It is those who Jesus, the son of Abraham, blesses that will be blessed by the Lord God. For who is Jesus? But as we were thinking last week, uh, it is, he is Emmanuel, God with us. Those he blesses will be blessed. Those he curses will be cursed. And this great nation that Jesus is building is not located in one land or made up of any one national people. Jesus is the father of a nation which has no human barriers or borders. And the hallmark of everyone who belongs is nothing of human distinctiveness, but rather the one thing we share with Abraham is his faith. We trust God's word like he did except we know that it's fulfilled in Jesus. And as we trust God's promise, as we look to Jesus in faith, so we too, like Abraham, are counted righteous before God. The blessing promised comes in Jesus, and those who trust him receive it abundantly. That's why Matthew gives us a genealogy. That's the story he's about to tell. Number two, Jesus is the son of David David is perhaps the central figure in the genealogy, and it seems Matthew is emphasizing that by his careful structure. There are many theories why Matthew artfully structures his genealogy around these three fourteens. But perhaps the best explanation is the numerical value of the name David in Hebrew is 14. It seems that he's underlining the centrality of David by the way he structured the whole genealogy. We can't be certain about that, but either way, the center of the genealogy being David is plain. Well, God said this to him, to Samuel chapter 7, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. It's an extraordinary promise to the ruler of a small kingdom in the ancient Near East. Around a thousand years at this stage before the birth of Jesus. So Abraham about 2,000 years before David, about 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus. Still ancient history for those who are hearing this for the first time in the first century. But the Lord was very plain to David. Your son will be the ruler of an eternal kingdom. Your son will be my son. Now, If you read the story of David for yourself, and it's great to do that in the Old Testament, you will know that there was a partial fulfillment of the promise And David's son Solomon, he did build a house, a temple uh, for the Lord. He was uh, a a pretty extraordinary achievement in itself. And yet it turned out to be rather hollow. Solomon's own foolishness meant that the kingdom didn't survive intact by the time that his son, David's grandson, Rehoboam, was on the throne. An eternal kingdom? No, it was a dwindling kingdom. And in the end, historically speaking, a pretty short-lived kingdom kingdom. A sin not only of the kings but of the people uh, meant that the story unraveled from the high point of David and Solomon. The temple was destroyed. The people were exiled. But the promise remained. An eternal kingdom. The son of God. How foolish it must have seemed to hold on to that promise when all the evidence of your eyes and of the history books before the coming of Christ suggested that there was no reliability to those promises at all. If you read uh, the actual stories of the names in the genealogy, David and Solomon and beyond, uh, you realize that it was never going to happen in the normal way that history and kingdoms uh, unfold. Uh, None of David's descendants presided over an everlasting kingdom, even the best of them, and there were some really good faithful kings, didn't deserve the title son of God. They were all flawed. They were all sinners. That was the promise, the expectation as the Old Testament storyline developed, the great promises and the endless disappointments. And that's how the Old Testament story ends. The promise remains, but every human being who we thought might have been one of those to fulfill it has turned out to be an abject failure. Psalm 2 is an echo of this promise. Uh, It was used in the coronation of the kings uh, of Israel. We read there these words, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You'll rule them with an iron scepter. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you are destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. How empty that must have sounded at the coronation of Rehoboam and the kings that followed him. But the promise remained. It was articulated in the worship of God's people. It was there in the scriptures. There would be an everlasting kingdom And it would center on a king who was both David's son and God's son. The problem in those remaining centuries of the Old Testament was that no head came that was fit to wear the crown. 
So again, do you see what Matthew was saying? Yes, no one has come. We've tried it, uh, as it were, in our own natural uh, succession of these kings uh, in the family line. But now one has come. And he really is the Son of God. And he really will reign over an everlasting kingdom. He anticipates here the end of his gospel where the Lord Jesus tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the king of an eternal kingdom. And so God has kept his promises in the son of David. So what must we do? Well, as the psalm says, kiss the son. That is, bow down in intimate homage to Jesus Christ, the son of David, and you will find eternal blessing as you come to take refuge in him. That's not just for ancient history or a genealogy. That's God's promise to you today. How can Jesus promise, as we reflected on last week, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, precisely because he is the promised son of David of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Number three, Jesus is the son of Azor. Uh, you'll see Azor in verse 14. Uh, I've um, just picked uh, this name at random from the third collection of names uh, between the exile and before Jesus' birth in verses 13 to 16. Uh, who are these men? Well, these are the uh, one who ought to have been sitting on the throne of David in the very last centuries of the Old Testament period. But rather like the kings of Bulgaria and Romania today, they have a title but they had no kingdom. It might have sounded good. There might have been a small society campaigning, uh, perhaps, for their restoration. You see in the news uh, a year or two back that there was a, a campaign by a small group of crazed Germans to uh, restore one of the descendants of Kaiser Wilhelm to the throne of Germany. Uh, there were only about a, do- a few dozen people who were convinced this was a good idea. It was never going to fly. Perhaps there were such people around Azor and the others. There was no prospect of them becoming kings in reality. Indeed, outside of Matthew's list here, we have no record of these men at all. They are absolute nobodies. Pathetic reminders of a once great kingdom. Imagine if you were a Jew, a descendant of Abraham and David in naught AD. I will make you a great nation. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. How hollow those promises must have felt. The word of God had apparently failed. And then Jesus comes and the promise is kept. Isn't there a similar danger for us? 2,000 years after at the birth and death and resurrection and exaltation of the Lord Jesus, at the church in the Western world... It's never been more divided and declining to the point of irrelevance in our wider culture. The gospel seems to be constantly under attack within the church, let alone outside its borders in the world. Is the Lord Jesus Christ really the king of an everlasting kingdom? Is he really on the throne of the universe? There are so many religions, there seems nothing but decay in the church that bears his name. It's been 2,000 years. He's not returned yet. Can we really trust his promises? 
Well, just as the believing Jew in the first century, in spite of the centuries that had led up to it, kept on trusting in God's promise, the son of Abraham would come and be a blessing to the world. The son of David would come, would come and be a king over a renewed and eternal kingdom. So we are caught in an age of unbelief and skepticism and decline to keep on putting our trust in the word of God, which has not failed, though it may seem in our days that we are in a day indeed of small things. Matthew's patterning of the list underlines the point. Did Azor realize that his apparently meaningless non-reign over a dead kingdom was actually an indispensable part of the beautiful pattern of God keeping his promises? Well, we don't know because we know nothing about Azor. Perhaps he was a faithful man or perhaps he wasn't. But the reality is that we should judge very little by what we can see from the short boundaries of our own lives and context. Matthew pans back to the big picture. And according to his time scale, measured in thousands of years, and not the short span of a lifetime, God is not slow in keeping his promises. Whether in the coming of Jesus in the first century, or in the 21st century in the Western world. His word has not failed. He is still patient. And his desire is that many from every people should receive the abundant blessing promised to Abraham as they too come under the reign of the son of David, Jesus Christ, and take refuge in him. Well, so much for the men. Let's go on to the second part of the story. The Lord is full of grace. Many of these men, of course, were rotten characters. The perseverance of Abraham's family tree is a work of grace in every generation. Abraham, read the story, hardly a model husband. Uh, David murdered Uriah so that he could marry his wife, uh, having already got her pregnant. Uh, the two great ones at the center of the list are themselves highly flawed and in many ways deeply unattractive characters. Uh, many years ago, I remember uh, being evangelized by a very intelligent and well-read Muslim who knew the New Testament better than I did. Uh, we had detailed correspondence uh, after our initial conversation Uh, where again and again he would try to persuade me of the superiority of the Quran uh, over the Bible. Uh, And I remember this was a real stumbling block for him uh, about the Bible's openness of the sin of its great heroes, of Abraham and David. And he was especially troubled by this genealogy in Matthew. How could a holy prophet, which is all that he would acknowledge Jesus to be, have a family tree That included incest and adultery and all manner of wickedness. Surely a holy prophet must come from a holy line. How he misunderstood the Christian gospel. How he misunderstood precisely Matthew's point in putting these names in this list. In fulfillment of the stories we know of them in the Old Testament. He's underlining that the Lord is full of grace, loving towards all he has made, not desiring the death of a sinner, but rather that we might turn from our wickedness and live. And the particular way that Matthew alludes to that is by his inclusion, contrary to custom, of a number of women in the genealogy. Yes, Jesus is the son of Abraham and David, that's the main point he's making, but he's also the son of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and, of course, Mary. And each of these women tells a story of God's grace. 
God's grace that has met them where they were and transformed them as they've put their trust in the God who is always faithful to his promises. They all point us to Jesus who has come to save his people from their sins, from the complicated mess of the lives we live and the mess that we make of them. Let's just go through them briefly. Tamar, uh, verse 3. On the surface, she's a scarlet woman. She entices her father-in-law, Judah, into an incestuous relationship that leads to the birth of both Perez and Hezron. But in the Old Testament, the story is told uh, sympathetically. She was driven to desperate measures by the failure of Judah to keep his promises. His control of her left her, she felt, with no choice to make but a dreadful one doesn't mean what she did was right. Uh, What it does mean uh, uh, in her being here is that she too has her place in the Messiah's family tree. She too was a recipient of grace, just as we may be. It means to, uh, I'd love to explore this theme further, but we will another time, uh, the way that the Lord folds in the wicked choices we make into his perfect plan to bless us in Jesus. Children born of incest are in the family tree of Jesus. That doesn't mean that incense is in any sense acceptable or anything other than the horrendous thing. We know at a gut level that it is. But what it does mean is this. There is nothing you have done or could do that will put you in a place where the Lord cannot reach and rescue you with his grace. Look at the family tree of Jesus. You've got a home here. This is made up of people who made a mess of their lives. Are you conscious perhaps of your own sin and perhaps the consequences of it that you're now living with for the rest of your life? Perhaps also conscious that circumstances made other choices almost impossible. Well, Jesus is the son of Tamar. He came for you and his grace is sufficient for you. Or verse 5, Rahab, uh, the pagan prostitute. Uh, It's hard to imagine a greater distance from the Holy One of Israel, yet she recognized the Lord for who he was, the God of heaven above and the earth below. She turned from her sin. She became a believer. Uh, She put her faith into practice by helping the, um, uh, the Israelites conquer Jericho at great personal risk and cost. And so she's cited in the New Testament as an example of faith. Why? Because God is gracious. He didn't bless a prostitute, he blessed her. And he called her to know his forgiveness and to trust him and to then live a new life uh, following him as one of his people. She had a colourful past. Maybe some of you do here. Maybe I don't know about it and you hope no one ever does find out about some of those things you've done. Maybe it is obvious and it trails around you. Well, Jesus is the son of Rahab. He came for you. His grace is sufficient for you. Also, Ruth, verse 5, she was uh, a foreigner, member of the tribe of Moab. The Old Testament law forbade uh, Moabites from entering the worship of the Lord in the strongest possible terms. These were enemies of the people of God. The letter of the law should have kept her from knowing the God of Israel. She was a hostile alien. And yet read the beautiful story of Ruth and find out what happened in reality when God's grace met her. She, it turns out, to have a greater faith than her Israelite mother-in-law at Naomi. Where you go, I will go, says Ruth. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, 
my God. Later in the story, Boaz, who she eventually marries, uh, speaks God's word to her. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. How can this be? Because God is gracious. And there's grace upon grace. And so if you feel you don't belong, that you're a stranger in church, or you live as a stranger in a strange land, And the natives perhaps sometimes cruelly point out to you that you don't belong. You have a friend. You have a friend whose wings of refuge will extend in the Lord Jesus to you. Because Jesus is the son of Ruth. Verse 6, Jesus is the son of Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, the adulteress. Doubtless she sinned. David was the king and it would have been hard to refuse, but it doesn't seem, if one reads the story, that she even tried. Nevertheless, Matthew hints, I think, at David's greater sin by not naming her, by calling her Uriah's wife and therefore drawing attention particularly to his sin. David knew she belonged to someone else, but he took advantage of her anyway. It became the moment when he wrote his most famous penitential psalm. I wonder if they both prayed. It's recorded as a prayer of David. But did David and Bathsheba both pray against you? You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm 51. And they did that. What did they discover? They discovered the God of grace. And it's striking, isn't it, that three of these four women so far, Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, are unknown to us because of their sexual sin. Now, the Greco-Roman world into which Jesus was born and the context in which Matthew was writing his gospel was seething with sexual license of every imaginable kind, probably quite a lot, that we mercifully can't even begin to imagine. There'd be very few in that culture who would be untainted by the sexual sin that seemed to have seeped into every aspect of the culture and of life. Well, doesn't that sound a little bit like the world in which we live as well? Jesus is the son of Bathsheba and David. We have a gospel that is precisely fit for our culture in precisely the mess in which we find ourselves individually and corporately today. We have a saviour who blots out our iniquity and to whom we can cry for a pure heart. Jesus is the son of Uriah's wife. Well then Mary, there's no hint uh, of anything um, sinful in her in terms of uh, that sort of sexual sin that that marks three of those other women any more than there was in Ruth. Uh, But there's no hint of anything spectacular either. She was just a teenage girl from a northern town. In Matthew's Gospel she plays no further part in the story. She's not described as heroic like Rahab. She doesn't have to overcome barriers to belonging like Ruth. But as Luke tells us, she was highly favoured by God. And why? And why do all nations call her blessed? Because God was gracious to her, and when he called to her, she trusted him. There's no better example of the gospel at work. Matthew's inclusion of these women anticipates 
everything he's about to write in the rest of the story. Jesus' natural family includes foreigners. Uh, It includes sinners of spectacular kinds. It includes those who've been sinned against, those who have suffered. And we find, uh, as he comes, that the Jesus, when he grows up and begins his ministry, will say, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He has come as Emmanuel. God is faithful. We can trust every word in the scriptures. And the faithful God who is revealed there and whose promises are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus is the very God who meets us in our sin and our need and calls us to come to him, we who are weary and burdened, and take re- find rest in him as we take refuge in his grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your family tree. Uh, thank you for all that it teaches us uh, when we understand the promises that your father had made. Thank you for the way they're kept in you. And thank you that you are the friend of sinners. You call us now to come in repentance and faith, to discover the liberty of our sins forgiven, washed away in the blood of your cross. Please, Lord Jesus, would you be at work in us today that we may not only be a people who know the greatness of your grace, but who will, as you will say at the end of this gospel, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation that others too may know that your boundless grace is for them also. To your Father's glory we pray. Amen.